if, you, if you attended our theology class uh, back in years past, you know that I loved writing on the whiteboard. It was one of my things I looked forward to. I would get all my colored pens and pencils, and I had wonderful drawings. They, they truly were artistic and uh, beautiful, aesthetically pleasing to all who saw them. Uh, <laughs> okay, no comments out of you. Um, Anyway, one of the things that I used to write up on the board, I used to ask the class, you know, what is the most important thing in your life, the very most, the top? And everyone would say, what? No? NFL? All right. No, people would say, God is number one in my life. And then after number one, number two is my family, and number three is my job, and number four, and they'd have this scale And we all do that. What is the most important thing in our life? But I would say to the class, as I'm going to say to you, when it comes to God, there is no number one. He's not number one as if there was a number two. There isn't. He stands alone. And one of the drawings I used to give you all was the cone of certainty. And of course, at the top of the cone of certainty is God or You can look at it as as a a three-dimensional like the universe. God is at the very center and everything else in our lives, our family, our friends, our job, our career, whatever it is, everything else is outside that primary allegiance to God alone. And so there is no number two. Everything stands subject to to God and to Him alone. So back uh, in the 1100s, I think it was, uh, uh, St. Anselm wrote uh, a famous piece that you can look online. It's available and it's worth reading. Cur Deus Homo, which means why the God-man. In other words, why did Jesus need to come as a human being? What was going on in God's mind to send his son to be incarnate, to be a person like us? Not part man, part God, but 100% man and 100% God. It's one of those things in the Bible that arithmetically, did I say that right? Okay, I should get a raise. Arithmetically, you can't figure out 100%, what does that mean? I don't know, but that's what it is. 100% God, 100% man. He had all of the frailties. He wasn't Superman. He was just a human being. At the same time, his divine nature was fully present. The only difference is in our theology, in Christian Orthodox theology, his divinity was clothed or covered with his humanity. Therefore, it was hidden. And only a couple of times during his earthly life did that break out, one on the Mount of Transfiguration and another time when he was being baptized and the Holy Spirit uh, spoke uh, and said, this is my son in whom I'm greatly pleased. When Jesus was getting ready to die, the night of the Passover, His disciples were troubled. He'd been telling them, he's leaving, I'm going away. And he said these famous words, and I know you all have heard them millions of times. Don't let your hearts be troubled. 
Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house. Listen carefully. More than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I'll come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Now, what Jesus was saying is not I'm going to go, I need to, Grab my bulletin here, folks. Pardon me. Uh, I'm not going to go up there and prepare the house. Uh, I'm not going to get the, you know, the fire going in the fireplace and make up your bed and uh, make sure there's plenty of soup on the, on the uh, stove uh, so I can feed you. That's not what he's doing. I'm going to create this space. I'm going to prepare a place where you can go where you couldn't go otherwise. I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to accomplish something that is going to make it possible for you to dwell with me in my Father's house. And I can't overstate that. It's actually mind-boggling. And only in hindsight can we really and truly look at this and understand what he was talking about. What in the world is that place that he was preparing for us? So, I'm going to read these uh, couple scriptures from Revelation. They're printed in your bulletin, and I printed the New Living Translation because it's a little plainer. Uh, the book of Revelation can be a bit intimidating, but so read along with me. It's a long reading, but I'll, I'll try to, to uh, get through it quickly here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, The new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. And I heard a loud shout from the throne. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his God. God himself will be his people. Verse 5, sorry. And the one thing, and the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he said, also, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards and unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers and liars, Their fate is in the lake of fire, burning with sulfur. This is the second death. And I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city. 
and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all of their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of days because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And on the next page, Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. All right, that's a brief description of the place that Jesus is preparing. The problem is with the book of Revelation, if you all remember, about two, three years ago, I I preached through it, it took half a year. I preached through the entire book of Revelation, and I hope it opens some of your eyes because the stuff you see on late night Christian television is erroneous and false, and uh, it's just unbelievably bad. But what I gave you was beautiful and perfect and absolutely correct. Uh, So... (laughs) Well, I gave you a, a, very, a, a very traditional and what the early church understood how the book of Revelation should be seen, which was to look at the imagery, to understand the images and not to become too hung up on literal, like there's going to be a city with gold jewels literally uh, stuck on it. There may be something like that, but that's not what the story is. The story is about the place that Jesus prepares for us. And what makes it so great? So this morning, we're going to look at the place, the people, and then finally, the God-man, the person who is the place. And this, although we think of heaven and uh, the new creation as being something, you know, off there, pie in the sky, that type of thing, what happens there affects here. It's not the other way around. What happens there effects here. It is moving towards us. Heaven is coming this way and God intends to come here and when he gets here he is going to descend to this place, not take us away. He's coming here and this is the place, the plan, the purpose that Jesus Christ came, why he had to be a man. Why the God-man? Why was it absolutely necessary? I've prepared a place for you in my father's house. Listen, Here's the thesis. That place in the Father's house, this place I just read to you and described, had to be made, had to be prepared, had to be opened by someone like us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the Father's house. You would simply be a guest, an alien visiting. 
But Jesus is creating a place for you and I and has created that place for you and I where we belong, where we have familial identity. My father's house, your father's house. Not visitors, not strangers, not alien. We're going to be completely comfortable in our father's house. Not gonna be, we're not going to worry about being outsiders and, and not welcome. There's going to be something there incredible, an intimacy. Listen to this, folks. An intimacy that God had planned since the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. That intimacy of God being present with his people, not just as uh, our boss in heaven or or the the man upstairs. No, our Father, intimate love relationship with us. And we see that at the Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 are recapitulated. This is a theological word that you probably don't want to remember, but recapitulated at the very end in Revelation 21 and 22. It's fascinating. So listen, let's look at it. First, the place. Verses 1 through 8. What you see here, the picture, is of a cosmic renewal a rebirth, if you will, a resurrection. And it's it's an analogy. It's an analogy to the creation, the original creation in Genesis chapter 1. You you know, you wonder how your Bible hangs together. I'll tell you how it hangs together, folks. Read chapters 1 through 3 of Genesis and then read 21 through 22 of Revelation. And then read John chapter 1, Verse 1. And it will shock you. If you don't get down on your knees and worship Almighty God with those few little verses, you don't get it. And I'll tell you, when you see the breadth of God's love for His people and how He brought all from the, from the worst day of creation to the best day of creation, He brought it all together in His Son. Cordeus, homo, why the God-man? For goodness sakes. What, how else? The place, cosmic renewal, recreation. You know, Peter, one of the other apostles, also wrote about it in, in uh, Second Peter. You all have heard this. The heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up for fire and kept until the day of destruction and the day of judgment. The heavens will pass away. The heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved and the earth and its works exposed. But according to his promise, await the new heavens and the earth, wherein righteousness dwells. Now, we try, to, we try to read that in light of Hollywood and, you know, a great apocalypse and the earth going up in flames and everything catches fire, including you, you wicked sinner, you. And everything burning up. But the word new here is not annihilation. It is not annihilation. It's purification. He is going to purify the earth. He's going to bring judgment, and it will be like fire, but fire is much too tame a word. You can imagine what the renewals are. You can imagine the conflagration that is coming 
that is going to completely reshape not only the earth, but the cosmos itself. Everything we know is going to be set right that was destroyed and set wrong. This speaks to everything in our lives right now when we crave, we crave to have meaning in our life. We, we feel like we need a place. People are going crazy in our century and they've been crazy forevermore trying to find meaning. We try to get it from money, uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever, you, whatever thing it is that rings your bell. We try to find meaning and hope. Oh, if I can just get this much, if I can just have children that don't misbehave, if my children who are grown now would just treat me right, they're treated, you know, they don't pay any attention. All of the mis, all of the miscues of life that bind us, and then and then ahead of us, what do we have to look forward to? Death, a grave, and we think modern man thinks, oh, that's our destiny annihilation. We're just going to go in the ground and die. So if that's true, then what makes your life meaningful now? Money? Can't take it with you. Your career? That's going to end sooner than you know. Your kids? No. You can't find meaning in those things because they don't last. So what does God tell us? He says, not annihilation. He didn't say annihilation for you. I see you hiding in that bush with those fig leaves. No, he doesn't say annihilation. He says resurrection, renewal. This is the hope of the Christian life. This is why Christians should not be wringing their hands and moaning and groaning about suffering. Suffering is okay. We were made to suffer. Jesus didn't suffer so we wouldn't have to. Jesus suffered so we could suffer. And do it with hope because you're going to whether you like it or not. Everybody suffers. Everybody has days when things are not going right. When their worlds are turned upside down. Look what he says. Look at verse 1 quickly. New heaven, new earth, and the sea is gone. That doesn't mean there's not going to be beautiful beaches with white sand. What that means is the sea, which was in Genesis 1, tohu v'bohu, it was the formless and void, it was the chaotic that was there that God hovered over by His Spirit and brought order to chaos and made beauty out of darkness, light instead of dark. The chaos, the dragon are gone. The beast is removed. There's no night there. There's no sea. The sea, the chaotic, is gone. Look at verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down from God out of heaven. Now listen. Like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Keep that in mind. Because what we see and what is often portrayed in art and film and stuff is this gigantic city that's kind of coming down, floating out of the sky. Just hold on to that. Verse 3, look, God's home is among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself, it's an emphatic in the Greek, God himself will be with us. Verse 4, and he himself, again, another emphatic, he himself is going to come And wipe away every tear from your eyes. 
No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. All of that has passed away. Next month, I'll be 67 years old. I'm not proud of that. It's just, that's what it is. And in all those years, there's been a lot of tears, a lot of crying, a lot of sickness, a lot of disease, a lot of loss. I come from a big family, the big Greek, uh, happy uh, Greek wedding family. That's mine, only Lebanese. Very big. Everybody's dying. And every time someone dies, I think... I'm going to really miss them, but that also means it's closer to me. I'm moving up in the line. And you can't stop that. As Dawson talked about last week, you can't... Death holds us. It strangles us. It holds us. And Jesus came to do something about to prepare a place where there's no more weeping and crying and mourning, you see there's something meaningful that he's going to do that no human being, no God of the, of the ancient uh, pantheons of the gods could even imagine doing. Look at verse 6. To the thirsty I will give a spring of the water without payment. Our deepest longings, what it's saying is, your deepest longings will finally be fulfilled And verse 8, the cowards, the unbelievers, the corrupt, the murderers, the immoral. You know, when you read those verses, you think, oh, he's fine. He's going to get rid of all those bad people and take all the good people in. No, no. That's a description of who we are and who we were. But he's going to remove that corrupting influence that has been present with us all our lives. We've never known a dish like a fish living in water that doesn't know what it is to go to Disneyland. They cannot comprehend the the distance, the space, the understanding. There's no way. You've always lived in a world that is corrupt and broken and hurting, and everybody around you is hurting. No, what he's saying is the corrupting influences that created cowards and unbelievers, and those, those things are gone in judgment will separate. The fire will purify. And then the other section we wrote, and I won't take too much time with this, a river of life. The throne, this is 1 through 5 of 22. Just listen to the imagery. It's just staggering. The river of life, the throne of God and of the Lamb, the tree of life, not mentioned, but a couple times in Scripture. Here it comes again, and there's not one of them, there's a lot of them on both sides of the river. And they're producing fruit every month, different kind of fruit, and they're putting out leaves. The leaves will heal the nations. Do you see the picturesque, the, 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 the beauty of what he's saying without getting too little and saying, well, what kind of tree and what kind of leaves? No, no, he's saying this is the tree of life. This is what is going to renew the world. The throne of God and of the Lamb are there. Dawson's going to talk about this next week. We're going to worship. We're going to see His face. This is what no human being was ever... The beatific... What R.C. Sproul calls the beatific vision that mankind and the ancient Israelites longed to see was God. Face to face, what Moses begged for. Let me see your face. We're going to see it. 
we're going to be able to look to him. Faith. It's not that you're going to all of a sudden see a face. You're going to be in that kind of relationship of intimacy. The face you will see is Jesus. Why the God-man? So you could see his face. So you have someone to look. So you can see the hands and the print of the nails and the hand. So you can see the feet. So you can see the sides. So you can see the thorns. So you can see the blood dripping from his garments. You see, he tread the winepress of God's judgment by himself. And his robes are stained red But yours, you'll be standing there looking at this and your robes are going to be sparkling and white. He's not going to blank out your memory. You're going to remember. You're going to know who you were. You're going to know what you had done. But it's going to be in light of that. Not just left there like a crushing weight that's going to bear you down into hell. Instead, you're going to see the crushing weight that was on Him. But now removed. And your robe white and clean. This is the place that only the God-man could have accomplished. But what about the place? This is where it gets amazing. And I couldn't, just don't have time, folks, to, to read it all. But in verses 21, uh, in, in chapter 21, verses 9 through the end of uh, 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 chapter 22, verse 5. That section is a detailed description of the city, the temple that's there, and the garden with the water of life and bright crystal flows from the tree of life and all that. That's a a detailed uh, description of all that's there. But just hold that for a moment because he he, he goes to elaborate uh, lengths to describe this. Listen to what uh, Dr. Derek Thomas says in his commentary. It's a great commentary, by the way. The, the word new here and in 1 Peter suggests newness in kind, not quality. So it's, it's a superiority. It's an excellence that you're going to see in this beautiful city that has come down. Greg Beale in his commentary in Revelation, which is another amazing book, the new cosmos will be identifiable, an identifiable counterpart to the old cosmos. I love this, listen. And a renewal of it, just as the body will be raised without losing its former identity. Now, if, you, if you've hung with me, and I told you not to forget the verses about the bride, this comes to the second point, and it's hard to, to get this Across, but I hope I, I, if I don't do it, it's my fault. It's not the Bible's fault. The Bible is pretty clear that the people, listen carefully, the people are the place. We get caught up in the description, and John wanted you to get caught. He wanted to, you to see and to be blown away, to have your hair blown all the way back with the amazement of the glory of this place. But he makes it very clear back in those original verses and now again that it's not a place. It's people. 
It's a living temple that has been perfected and beautified and glorified and cleansed and made so lovely that all, that when you look in the mirror now, you see, oh no, the wrinkles. Whatever you're looking at, no more hair. I used to have, uh, you know, I used to have great waves up here, but now all I have is beachfront. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying this beauty is beyond description. How do we know? Well, look at 21, 9 and 10. It's not in your bulletin. You have to look at it in your Bible. But this is what he said also in those first five verses. The angel said to John, Come, I'll show you the bride, the Lamb of God, the wife of the Lamb of God, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, the holy city of Jerusalem. He looked down and what did he see? The bride, not the city. And then he describes the bride, but anybody in the ancient world that would have read that would have understood. It's not a city, that's us. The living temple, the people of God now adorned. With glory, all the corrupting influences gone. Every tear wiped away, all the pain gone. Not erased, not annihilated, but put in a place where you can always remember, always look back on it, but now in light of your redemption, it becomes something glorious, not as if it never existed. No, it's a resurrection, new New, new. Not merely a place, but the people. One scholar said this, the description of the new creation symbolically and metaphorically is not a place for people. Listen to this, folks. Not a place for people, but people who make a place. Those living stones, that new Jerusalem, that place that Jesus purified with his own blood, the jewels, the tree of life, the crowns, the glory, all of that made possible. Cordeus homo. Why the God-man? Because it was a man who came and did it. Not Superman, but a man who in all ways, like a few weeks ago, always, in every way, made like us the same frailty, the same fears. God, if there's another way, we sang it in one of our hymns, if there's another way, please remove the cup from me. He had to drink a cup. Who's going to drink the cup? Some kind of a spirit floating around? An angel? No. Who? Who can drink a cup? A man. Who can see the adulteress and the liar and the thief and the corrupt and the prostitute and the tax? Who can see them? Somebody with eyes. Who can feel the the hurt and the pain and the tears? Who's going to wipe away those tears? Somebody who has a hand. Not metaphorical. A real hand. A real man. I saw one sitting on the throne, and from the throne a voice said, Look, I am making everything new. It is finished. I am Alpha 
and omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of water. Do you see that in the new creation, who is speaking from the throne? It is the Alpha and the Omega. Who is the Alpha and the Omega? Jesus Christ is Alpha and Omega. And he's now seated with his Father in the same throne. The same seat. There's not, Jesus is not some other kind of thing. He is the divine Son of God. Always was, always will be there in the throne for us. Not to say, I see you. But to say, where are you? Like Gary said in his prayer this morning. Creation's ultimate meaning, folks, and that means our ultimate meaning is the person and work of Jesus, the tree of life. He called himself the tree of life, the water of life, the bread that came down from heaven. John heard those words recorded in, in his gospel, and then he wrote the picture. He drew the masterpiece, the painting in the book of Revelation of what all those images meant and who they were. And how did Jesus get to that throne and be able to say those words? I'm making everything new. It's finished. I'm Alpha Omega. Begin. How in the world did that happen? Curdeus, homo. He stepped out of eternity, gave up the throne, came down here into this weary, dry, empty world. And dying on the cross, he said, I thirst so we could drink from the water of life. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The grief and the pain, the crushing effects of sin in this world that we, no matter on our best day, they're still there hovering around us. He took them in all the way in so that we could have hope in this place. Our guilt, our shame, our brokenness. He cried out, it is finished into your hands. I commit my spirit so that we could be resurrected. Reborn, he died and went to hell so the grave would not ever affect you and I. We put our trust in the one who destroyed the grave. Let me finish with this. The imagery of the tree of life is really shocking. And many, many, uh, John Calvin wrote about it. Uh, I have the full quote here, but we don't have the time. Uh, But I will read you this one stanza from a poem by George Herbert, the uh, English uh, writer. It's called The Sacrifice. And if you get a chance, get it out and read it. Uh, It's uh, long. It's 100, 100 lines, over 100 lines. I think it's 63 stanzas. And it's Jesus, from his perspective, speaking to us. And one of the lines towards that, as he goes through his his passion, people spitting on him, I'm looking at their spitting on me. Uh, I came and took on eyes so they could see me. And You know, all of these metaphors, beautiful poem, The Sacrifice. But towards the end, there's this one that just, it, it just, it struck me. I read it every Christmas and I read it every Christmas. Uh, Easter. 
Here's the one stanza. Oh, all ye who pass by and see. He's up on the cross and he's speaking to us. All you who pass by and see, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, to all but me. Who loves you? Who went to the cross for you? What does Christmas mean? Why? Why the God-man? So he could climb, climb that tree of life so the cross could become our tree of life. Will you trust him? It's time for the church to trust their Savior and their King who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Father, thanks. Uh, Thanks for sending your son. You did not spare him, but you sent him for us all. And it is in you, Lord Jesus, that we live and move and have our being. And I pray that this Christmas we will never forget why you came, why the God-man who climbed the tree, the tree of life for all except for me. Help us. And save us, O Lord. Amen.